Find, if you will, the um, second chapter of the book of James. We have two texts really tonight. Um, last Sunday night, or Sunday night before last, the last time that um, we had a preaching service here, I um, was preaching from the second chapter of the book of James and in that text that talked about the fact that you can't have saving faith without works and that works validate your faith where justification or uh, as James uses it is interchangeable with the word validation so that James's argument is that if you have saving faith there will be the validation of that faith in fruitful work and he gave two illustrations one is the illustration of Abraham offering Isaac, and the other was Rahab, the harlot that secured uh, the spies, or Joshua, in the land of uh, Canaan. Now, I want to come back tonight, and I want to pick up on that illustration about Abraham offering Isaac, his son. Now, if, if saving faith is validated by fruitful work, what is this work? And how, what does it look like? Show me an example of it. Give me a picture of that. That if I'm genuinely saved, my works will validate that faith. But what are these works like? And I want to read verse 20, and then we'll go over to Genesis chapter 22. So you'll need to find that, and that's where we'll spend our time. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, would you turn to Genesis chapter 22? Alan Redpath says that the conversion of a soul is the miracle of the moment. It's the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. Now, when a person becomes a Christian in the conversion moment, in that instant, that person becomes a new creation. It occurs at point of time on, on, the, on the clock. And in that miracle of the moment, that person is literally transformed into a new creation. The literal translation from the Greek is, he becomes a new species of being. But the process of becoming is not over when that happens. The process of becoming is just beginning. And so Paul says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away and new things are becoming. And he says on another occasion, But we with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being changed 
into the same image from glory to glory so that this process of becoming goes on and on. Being a Christian then means that you're always in the process of becoming. Never stops. God is out to change you into the likeness of His Son. You're not there yet. And one of the best methods, one of the major methods in the process of making us to become like Christ is through the process of trials. And a classic example of that is Abraham, this father of the Hebrew nation. He is the classic example of this work of God, this manufacture of God, making him or um, uh, manufacturing him into this saint. Now let me just say parenthetically a couple of things about Abraham, this central figure of Hebrew history. One is that, that in, in the life of Abraham we discover that God's security is dynamic and not static. That means that the primary word that surrounds the life of Abraham and is at the guts of his life is the word move, be, move on, move out. So that the security of God is in the process of becoming something we are not now. And if we become you know, complacent, we settle down, become self-satisfied, that's when we die. The second truth from Abraham's life is this, that perfection is not the prerequisite for God to begin to use you. Aren't you glad? I've said this a lot of times, that perfection belongs at the end of the process and not at the beginning or the middle of God using us. And nowhere is that more predominant than in the life of Abraham. This guy was really not perfect to begin with. But in this process of becoming God working in his life, manufacturing for himself this friend of God. And the verse 1 of chapter 22 begins with this statement, Now it came about after these things. Now what are these things that he's talking about? If, the major, if a major method of God perfecting us into the likeness of His Son is a trial or a test, then, then you've then you got a clue here that, that these things refer to these tests or trials that God had brought into the life of Abraham prior to this very moment in chapter 22. And there are three major trials or crises in his life prior to this. Remember that Abraham, at this point in time, 75 years old. The first major crisis was, is in chapter 12 of Genesis when he's told to get up and leave home. Now, there was a time when I liked to move about every other year. Until uh, I got to be about 30, I, I was moving around. My daughter, when she was a junior in high school, was nominated for some kind of a queen of some sort, and my older daughter, and, and, and so she had to give, you know, a little speech about her life, and, and we got to, you know, helping her make her speech, found out for the time she was born till she got to be a junior in high school, she had moved 13 times. Everybody was you know, sympathetic, you know, so sympathetic. Um, I, I used to love to move, but now when I crossed the great 40, I promise you that moving is no longer that attractive. Abraham was 75 when God told him to get up and leave your family and your 
your, your country and, and, and go to a land that I'll tell you. And he goes to his wife, who's not a, much younger than, than, than he is, and he says, Honey, pack the U-Haul, we're moving out. She says, Where are we going? He says, I don't know. Now that'll bless you. you know. Major crisis. The second major crisis is found in verse 13, and it's the separation from Lot, his nephew. And there came a time when there is this dissension that developed in this relationship, and so he separated from Lot, his nephew, the last remaining family member. And verse in, in chapter 17 is the third major crisis where he is called by God to abandon his cherished plans for Ishmael. Now, my Sunday school class, we're studying the book of Genesis. We have made, we're, we're, we're just bogging down. We're, we're, Jerry's in that class. We're just kind of uh, just having a good time in there with, with the story of Abraham. And, and God has made all these promises to Abraham about blessing him through his loins, a, a, a nation of people, nations of people. And one day uh, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, you know, this is not turning out like we thought. I'm not able to have a baby. Why don't you take my handmaid? So he did, and a son was born to Ishmael. And then God comes back to Abraham and says, Okay, Abraham, it's time now for the promises I made you to be fulfilled. And it's going to happen through Sarah, who is childless and aged. And Abraham thinks of Ishmael, his son, and makes this uh, poignant request. He says, God, I, I would ask you this. Don't forget Ishmael, my son. And God says, No, the promise is going to be accomplished with regard to redemption through Isaac, through Sarah and Isaac, not through Ishmael. You know why? Let, let me tell you why. Because God's plan of redemption for the world has always been a plan based upon grace, on something God alone does. Now, who was Ishmael? Ishmael was the son born of Abraham's ability. Ishmael was the son born of Hagar's ability. And, and he was the fruit of their resources and their plan and their scheme and God's plan of redemption. Remember this when you, when you, when you want to know how to be saved. That God's plan of redemption is going to be accomplished by God alone, something that's accomplished by His grace. Now, the crisis... And so now he comes to this fourth major crisis in chapter 22, the offering of Isaac. Now get your Bible and we'll take off here. That's the, that's the, run, we're, that's the introduction. All this is a runway. Now we're fixing to take off. Verses 1 and 2, the revelation of the text. Now if you're following in your outline. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. I want you to underline that word tested because it is a word in the Hebrew that means an intense test. He's translated like this, And now it came about after these things that God turned the heat up on Abraham, and He intensely tested him. Now God had been testing him prior to this. If you've been anywhere in the neighborhood of this building... You've heard that there are three ways he tested him, but nothing like the test that's coming now. That may be God's plan for you. You may have come through tests to this point. It may be that God now is getting ready to, to intensely test you. Turn up the heat seven times hot. 
And it may be that God has in mind for you and me an intense testing so that He plans the length and He plans the depth and He plans the temperature. And this is the test. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now Abraham knew what a burnt offering was. Abraham was over a hundred years old now. And at the point, at, 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 and, and God's promise to Abraham and God's word and the reliability of it is at the heart of this test. Because all that God had promised Abraham was going to be fulfilled through Isaac. And Abraham understood what a whole burnt offering was. That's when you took the offering, put it on the put it on the altar, set fire to it, and let it be consumed. There's nothing left but ashes. Now this is the test, the severe test. I want you to take everything I've promised to, to you and set it on fire. And I want you to take that which is the dearest to you, and I want you to put it on the altar and consume it there. And I want you to place that which you, on which you stake all of your faith, and that you consume. Isn't it true that God has a way of putting His finger on the things that mean the most to us? And so the rich young ruler comes running to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Keep the commandments. I've done all that. He said, Then this is what you lack. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Does that mean everybody who follows Jesus has to do that? No. You go to the doctor, he doesn't prescribe the same medication for every, you know, the same medication to everybody. He diagnoses the need and makes the prescription on the basis of a need. And so he looked into the, to Abraham's life and he knew this thing he cherished the most. And he put his finger right on that and says, Don't hold out on me there. Now, that's a pretty severe test. Now the response of Abraham. Now, if a person has genuine faith, then that genuine faith is going to be validated by his, by his works. That's what James's conclusion is. Now, what is that? What does it look like? It looks like this obedience of Abraham. Well, let's look at it. First of all, it was immediate. So Abraham rose early in the morning before sunrise. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. One of the greatest enemies of the faith is procrastination. If I can just kind of wait, maybe God will change his mind. He was on his way before sunrise. I was in seminary class one day and I noticed this guy in class with us. He was, he was an old, old man, about 50. And... And, and I was 25, and, and, and I, you know, 50 to me then, it, it looked like he was on the last leg. And he, he was sitting in class, and, and I, I remember, you know, just wondering, you know, wondering what he's doing here. And one day the teacher was visiting with the class, and we were just kind of sharing. He gave his testimony, and there we'll forget it. He looked around, and he said, you guys are really, really fortunate. He said, you just don't know how blessed you are, all us young guys there. He said, God called me to preach when I was a senior in high school. 
And he said, I knew that one day I would give my life to Christ to be a preacher. But he said, I just, I just kept putting it off. And he said, you know, he said, I kept thinking there'll be a better day. He said, I, I wanted to play football, so I, I went on to school and played football. And I thought, well, when I get through with my college days, I'll get all. He said, then I, I, after football, I got this offer. He said, man, he said, a lot of money. He thought, well, I'll get started and I'll get some money laid away. He said, I got married. And then, and then it was when I get the kids, you know, when they get a little older, we can go on down to seminary. He said, you know, about three years ago, I finally did what I should have done 20 years before. Procrastination is the chief enemy of faith. It was immediate. Second, it was characterized by trust. Now look, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Underline, man, that's so heavy. He saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder. And we will worship. Isn't it amazing that, that worship, worship is just obeyed, obedience. And we will worship. And put the word in, and we will return to you. Now, I, I hope that you can understand what he's saying there. Because he understands that a burnt offering is an offering that's consumed, nothing left but ashes. And he is expressing a confidence and a belief that somehow God's going to raise Isaac up out of the ashes and return his life again. You say, well, how do you know that's what he believes? Well, Hebrews 11 says it is. It says Abraham believed God knowing that he could raise the dead. And the amazing thing about this is, is that Abraham had no evidence that God had ever raised the dead. Now you and I can look back on theological history and we, we find it difficult to believe that now, but we, we do believe it we, because we have such scriptural evidence that there have been, there, that Jesus is the first fruits of them that sleep and He's been raised from the dead and others have been brought back from death. But I want you to know that Abraham lived in a pagan land and probably with his father worshipped pagan idols and he didn't have that much knowledge of God to this point in time and yet believed that God would raise him from the dead. Now I want you to think tonight of a task that's utterly impossible that God has laid His finger on for you. Utterly impossible. Can't do it. I want you to think of that task. I can't do that. I was, I was counseling not long ago and, 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 and got down to the, to the nitty-gritty with this counselee that one of the major problems was that she had this bitterness toward her parents, couldn't forgive them. So I just can't do that. I just can't. I say can't or won't. I just can't. Think of that task which is the impossible task. That's what he's doing. Faith is seeing the invisible, knowing the unknowable, believing the unbelievable, so that you might achieve the impossible. It was based on faith. Third, it was a response. Now I want you to hang in here with me. It was a response that was centered on his 
understanding, his knowledge, his faith in the character of God. Now look at verses 6 through 8. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. God will do it. He was, he was faced not only with the reality of the test, but he also was faced with the reality of the character of God. Now I need to ask you a question tonight. Which is the greater reality in your life? Your problem or His provision? Which is the greater reality tonight in your life? Your pain or His provision? Which is the greater reality in your life tonight? Your suffering or His sufficiency? Which is the greater reality in your life? This task that is impossible or the faithfulness of God to perform it? Now, when we're confronted with a test, the task, that test all just kind of it grows like, you know, it, it, it's like the, like the blob that, that ate New York. I mean, it just keeps on growing, getting bigger and bigger. And it just overwhelms, it just takes up the whole, the whole perspective, and, and all of a sudden, all we can see is the problem. Paul said... No test, no temptation has, overtake, has, has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. And He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape. Now, the character of God must be kept in perspective. That's what He did. Fourth, it was a... By the way... I was, I was digging through here the other day, and I found this verse of Scripture. I've got to share it with you. It's the, it's the third chapter of Colossians, verse 11. Can I, can I just, by way of, since I'm in the neighborhood, can I just stop here just a second? A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freedman. Look at this. But Christ is all and in all. You know what he's saying? There is not anything you need that Christ isn't. I just put that down in the flyleaf there. There isn't anything you need that Christ isn't. Have you ever noticed that, that in the Bible Jesus is called everything that is important to man? To the hungry is called bread. To the thirsty he's called water, to the ignorant he's called truth, to the lost he's called the way, to the dying he's called life, to the geologist he's the rock, to the zoologist he's the lion, to the botanist he's the lily of the valley, to the carpenter he's the foundation, to the soldier he's the prince of peace. There's not anything I need, he's not. And if he is all and he is in you, then you have no deficiency. Write that under there. If He is everything 
and He's in you, then you have no deficiency. And so, knowing this, Abraham didn't make a bitter walk up Mount Moriah. It was an adventure in faith. That's why he got up early in the morning to, to get it done. Now, it was thorough and complete. Verse 9. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, anytime you see a man's name used twice in a row in succession, it's done that way for, out of respect. Out of respect. I tell you, God is touched by a man of obedience and faith. And so out of heaven comes this voice of the pre-incarnate Christ and He calls down to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here I am. And He said, Don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for I know that you fear God. Now that's what James is talking about in chapter 2. I know that you have faith. I know that. You have validated it. There can be no question about it. You, you may say you have faith, but now it's, it's, here's the evidence. I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son for me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, him, behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Somebody said that while Abraham and Isaac were making their way up one side of Mount Moriah, an old ram was making his way up on the other side. Now two things, God spared his son and he gave him a substitute. On the back of your worksheet, there are three important lessons and I want you to get these. Three important lessons. I think you can hear a voice inside of you saying, Amen, when these three lessons I share with. Number one, what you retain for self, God will ask you to release to Him. What you retain for self, God will ask you to release to Him. Let me, let, me ask, let me say it this way. You say, well, what does God want from me? What does God want from my life? He wants what you have retained for self. And the tighter you hold on to those things, the more painful is the release Number two, what you release to God, He will replace with something better. What you release to God, He will replace with something better. The amazing thing about it, tradition has it, that the very place 
where Isaac was to be offered on the altar and a ram was put in his place. It was the place where Jesus was crucified. What you release to God, will, He will replace with something better. Number three, whenever God replaces, He also rewards. Whenever God replaces, He also rewards. Now by that I mean that God always gives back more than He takes. And He rewards that man who offers up the most important thing to Him. Now let us pray. Father, help us to validate our faith the same, with the same kind of obedient trust, obedient response characterized this man. And help us to see that Abraham is not the exception, but the example of every child of God, everyone you want to be your friend. For I pray in Jesus' name, I ask it for Christ's sake. There are three invitations. Look here just a moment. An invitation tonight for you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You might have to surrender up the dearest thing you have for that. Danny was sharing with me after church about an article he read in Sports Illustrated this week. This guy was this macho guy, this big athlete or whatever, and he he was talking about his faith, and he was some kind of a war hero, and he'd been through several battles and survived, and, 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 and when they started talking about, you know, you need to surrender your life to God, he said, I can't do that, because if I did, I'd have to admit that what happened back there was not me. It may be that you'll have to surrender pride tonight if you came to the Lord. And admit that you can't save yourself. You can't make things right. You've tried. Just admit that only by God's grace can you ever be different. What you give to Him, He gives back and reward. You may want to come tonight and join the church. Or you might just feel like you need to come publicly to declare a new walk, a new commitment to Christ to say, I, I, I want to I wanna live in such a life that my faith will be validated the way I live. It's not being done that way. We'll give you a chance to come. We'll sing two stanzas. We'll invite you to come. On the first word, you'll need to step out while we stand to sing.